Our scripture reading this evening is Luke 24, verses 13 through 49. This evening in our study of the Belgic Confession, we come to articles 4 through 6, which are on the canon of scripture, that is the definitive list of what books of the Bible belong in the Bible as Scripture. There's many things we learn from that. The lesson's going to begin a bit abstract, but we're going to move to what I hope will be a sense of spiritual payoff that we'll enjoy together. And a main part of that is simply the emphasis of the unity of Scripture, how all of the Bible fits together. And so both of those points, the canon of the Old Testament and how all of it fits together, are expressed by our Lord Jesus Christ in this account. This is a story happening after the resurrection of Christ, before he has appeared to all of his disciples. And this is an account of him appearing to two of them on the road to Emmaus. So after the resurrection, before the ascension. Luke 24, verses 13 through 49. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, 
The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my spirit upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves into the face of your Son, whom you have made appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession is Article 5. Uh, We're actually, it's all of Articles 4 through 6. Article 4 is simply a listing of the books of the Bible. Article 6 is a listing of the Apocrypha, those books that have been rejected as not being Scripture. The Belgic Confession does uh, commend them as being useful and valuable to learn from. In the midst of that, the affirmation of the canon of Scripture, that is the list of the books of the Bible, we then make this confession in Article 5, which we'll read aloud together. God has spoken to us in His Word. This is our confession of faith in response to God's Word. Let us say together, we receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. 
congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this evening in our study of the Belgic Confession, we come to the question of canon. Number one on your outline, and notice this is canon spelled with one N. Well, actually two N's, but they're not together. And so this is canon referring to an authoritative list, referring to the list of the books of the Bible. And the question is simply this, number one on your outline, where does the table of contents in our Bibles come from? I, as the one who gets to teach this, have a bit of a challenge before me this evening, and that is that I'm guessing a lot of us have never really worried about this question before. If you have not worried about this question, the way we confess this in the Belgic Confession would suggest there are all sorts of good reasons not to have ever worried about it. But for some things, and this is one of them, to go deeper into what we confess, to be ready to defend it, to commend it, to call others to this confession, we do need to raise the question. We need to, in a sense, worry about it a little bit. At least be convinced that this is an interesting question. And so I'm going to try to convince you of that for a moment or two. I may not be successful, that's fine. And so if I'm not successful, this first part will feel a bit abstract. But I want to assure you, I do have pastoral goals for this teaching this evening. And so it may feel a bit abstract here at the beginning, but as we move into the last part of point two, and then especially point three, there is a richness and a beauty that, to what we confess together that it is my prayer would be an encouragement to us this evening. So uh, my first way of persuading us that this issue matters is to try to raise the question a bit. Where does the table of contents from the Bible come from? There are some who would use this question to attack us and to try to persuade us to join the Church of Rome, where the claim is made that where the list of the books of the Bible comes from is that Rome says these are the books of the Bible. And if you don't simply go with what the Church of Rome says as the authority telling us this is so, well, then you are stuck with an endless subjectivism, simply deciding for yourselves. And in fact, as we read the Belgic Confession, perhaps for some of us, that worry might have arisen. Is that what the Confession is describing? I'm going to argue it's not a little bit later, but we need to sense this worry. We might say to our evangelical brothers and sisters who have in many ways rejected any idea of tradition having authority, any idea of learning from something like the Belgic Confession, we might say to them, you claim you don't want to ever use creeds, you don't want any confessions, no creed but Christ, just me and the Bible. Well, then we have to point to the table of contents of the Bible and say, where did that come from? That sure looks like a creed you are confessing. Now, many would respond saying, well, no, it's simply because some sort of internal, spiritual, personal experience I have. And you might think that's what the Belgic Confession is saying. It's not. The key is in the plural pronouns. It is we as the church who are receiving in the way the confession says. But this is a real problem. And if we don't have a good answer to the question, well, then we or our children are susceptible to the claims of Rome or to the claims of the chaos of evangelicalism in their rejection of Rome. How do we answer the question? Well, part of the problem in how we answer it is many attempts at answering it amount to giving lists of criteria. Some of us may have learned canon in this way. There are times where I have. 
where it amounts to giving lists of criteria. For example, the books that belong in the Bible are books that are written by an apostle. But we have a problem. Luke's not an apostle. Or we'll say, the books that belong in the Bible are books that were used liturgically in the early church. Well, we don't have evidence for every single one of them being used that way. And we can go on. All of the lists of criteria don't really work. None of them apply to all the books. And if we do use them, we still have to ask, well, whose list of criteria? Who decides? And then we become tempted again either to go to the authority of the church, Rome answers it for us, or we have to retreat to simply a subjective individualism. It's because when I read these books, you know, I feel different. And so I'm convinced. Well, how then do we answer this question? Too long of an introduction, I understand. Letter A. I hope we are persuaded there's at least a real question. Well, A, B, and C here are trying to build the very basic approach for how we should approach this. First, letter A. Last week, we studied the doctrine of inspiration, the confession of faith that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And that quote, breathed out by God, is coming from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And as we confess this doctrine of inspiration, one of the things we notice is that when Paul says that in his letter to Timothy, when he refers to all Scripture, he is speaking of Scriptures that already exist. He's speaking of what we would call the Old Testament. But he's speaking of a pattern existing in the Old Testament that was understood to be continuing to be unfolding in the time of the Apostles. And so it's very important that when he says this, it's not an abstract doctrinal point. It's rather referring to something that had been happening before and that was continuing to unfold then. Letter B. This is part of a pattern established in the Old Testament and continued in the New Testament. A pattern that led to what we now call the canon of Scripture. What is this pattern? Well, the Old Testament canon, the definitive list of what belonged in the Scriptures, was well established long before the time of Christ. And it was established as part of a pattern that was established long before the time of Christ of how this happened. The basic pattern is this. God would act in history. He would do something, an event, an historical event, public before many people. Think the plagues and the exodus from Egypt. We're still under letter B on your outline. Don't be looking for blanks to fill in. Still letter B. What would happen? There'd be a historical event that would happen. The exodus from Egypt. That historical event in living memory as having publicly happened, God would then give an authoritative interpretation of. And as he gives that interpretation of it, explaining that historical event, there would be miraculous events surrounding the, given, the giving of that revelation, explaining the historical event. Those things then were consistently, because of the obviousness of the public event, because of the obviousness of the miracles that happened, those things were then received as scripture, again, not by subjective experience, but by the power of those things to call people to faith. And in the calling to faith, a gathering a church, assembling a covenant people around that word being spoken, testifying to historical events. And one of the main indicators of those scriptures interpreting the events was the way they were then used in worship of the people who gather together. At no point in that Old Testament pattern were people saying, 
Here's our criteria for what counts as Scripture. Let's analyze these documents, figure out if it fits these criteria, and then decide, are, do these books belong in the Bible? Rather, it was public events interpreted by God that the very publicness of them, the thing God did, brought into existence the people who were gathered around that word. They never even asked the question. It was obvious that this word was scripture because it is the word that brought them into existence. This is what was happening at the time of the apostles. And the apostles, as Jewish believers, were aware that this was happening. And so you have places where the apostles refer to each other's writing with the language of Scripture, but they're very careful with that because that's sort of an odd thing to claim for oneself, but they're aware this pattern is happening. Why? Because a historic event had happened, the resurrection before many witnesses in a way that was undeniable, with revelation being poured out, explaining it in the time of the apostles, with miraculous events happening, the apostles performing miracles, they're speaking in tongues. I'm still under letter B. Why does everyone look confused? Did I not fill in the blank for you? Letter B, what we call the canon of Scripture. We're still there. Okay. That pattern is happening in the New Testament. Historic public event being interpreted the apostles giving the interpretation, explaining what is happening, and miraculous events surrounding them, commending them to those people. And what is happening as they are doing this, but a people is being brought into existence. That word, interpreting those historical events, is creating a people. At no point did that group of people have a list of criteria where they said, how do we choose which books count as scripture? Rather, that word created them. And it created them because it came along with obvious public historical events. It was never a list. It was a deeply rooted Old Testament pattern that continued into the new. Now, that whole big idea is what I want to try to summarize in letter C. Here we are now, letter C. The canonical books are those that the church received as representing the witness of the apostles to Jesus Christ, arising out of the, and I love this phrase, this comes from another writer, arising out of the apostolic matrix of the early church. So the point is not a list of criteria, did an apostle write it? The point is, it is those writings that testify to those things that were happening, those public historical events. As we look back in the history of it, there was a striking, at least it has struck me repeatedly, because I will get anxious about this question, and then I'll explore these things, and I'll be struck by how I'm encouraged by it. There is a striking lack of anxiety about this question, a striking lack of worry about the question of boundaries and what's in and what's not. Rather, there was this self-understanding attested by historical events that that Old Testament pattern was happening at the time of Christ. They just weren't all that worried about it. What all of this means is that the question of canon is something internal to Scripture. It comes from within Scripture, and it brings the church into existence. From the very beginning, at every point, the canon of Scripture was something received by God's people received by the church of Jesus Christ as something that was acting on them, a means by which God was working, God was doing something. 
And this is why you have the, the, the delightful complexity of four gospel writers all saying things in different ways, often in ways that are, that are different, difficult to reconcile, dif- difficult to make fit together, because all of them are speaking as witnesses to a real historical event. I love in particular how some scholars have pointed out that as the gospels come close to the description of the resurrection, they do the least theologizing, the least explaining of things. It's very clear that they're simply serving as witnesses to a historical event that had happened because they would not have been writing any of this if it hadn't happened, because they were Jewish believers who knew that is the pattern. That is how this goes. And so there are then collections of texts used in worship as a result of those being the texts that brought that group of people into existence in the first place. Because of that lack of anxiety, we see number two on your outline, or both because of it but also as a cause of it, the ancient consensus. There is overwhelming agreement, even in the earliest testimonies of the church, regarding the canon of Scripture. The places where there are disagreements, the book of Revelation, for example, was recognized a bit later than others. The exceptions are noteworthy for being exceptions. And the overwhelming agreement is so notable. In fact, there was so little worry about this that there was not felt to be a need for a definitive list of scriptures until there were certain enemies that had to be opposed. Letter A, the church acknowledged the canon definitively in response to second century challenges. So what is happening? Out of this apostolic matrix, this testimony to Christ from the time of the apostles brings the church into existence. The church recognizes this is happening. It is, what, it is the word that calls forth the existence of the church. But then it starts to be attacked. And that's now where we start to need a list. Where they're like, wait a minute, hold on. We do need to make sure we're clear about this. Which ones are we talking about? Marcion in the second century, for example, wanted to eliminate the Old Testament. And the fun thing about that is when you eliminate the Old Testament, you have to eliminate almost all of the New Testament because it's all just like the Old Testament. And he started to do things like that, cutting out portions of the New. And so in response to that, the church had to speak in terms of what the canon was to fend off that error. On the other side, Montanus wanted to add new revelation. So wanted to argue that as the Holy Spirit you know, makes you feel led or however that goes, that these things could then be added to Scripture, be part of Scripture. Notice these are very familiar errors for our time as well. A neglect of the Old Testament, a way of speaking of the Holy Spirit that that threatens the uniqueness of what Scripture actually says. In response to those errors, the church spoke clearly about the canon. Nevertheless, letter B, The scriptures are not established by the institutional authority of the church, but are received by the church, right? So at that moment where the church has to speak definitively in response to those challenges, that speaking definitively is not the source of canon being canon. It is not the basis for it. It is rather the church humbly receiving and acknowledging what God has done and what God has spoken, And so our Belgic Confession says it this way. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them. 
not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all, because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. The Belgic Confession's point here is that it is not the institutional authority of the church at a point in history that then makes it so that we now receive. Rather, it is the church of all times and places receiving God's word directly and receiving it as scripture. And the language of the confession here is not meant to be retreating to individualism, right? It is we as the church, we as the church who approve them because the Spirit testifies in our hearts, because they prove themselves to be from God. It is we as the church corporately upon whom the Spirit and the Word are constantly working. It's never simply me as an individual. Now that sort of error spun off from certain excesses, we might say, of the Reformation, but that is never what the Reformers themselves had in mind. We do this corporately, communally, and that means the church has real authority in the way of wisdom, in the way of pointing us to these truths. We learn from the Belgic Confession about the canon of Scripture, and all of that is good and right. To sum up all of this, to sum up all of this, let her see. The idea of canon is a principle internal to Scripture not a measure imposed upon Scripture from without. God's Word calls, summons, gathers, and creates His people. It's a principle internal to Scripture. It's not a list of criteria we come up with and then we impose it. It is rather that God's Word calls us into existence, creates us as His people. This idea of canon being a principle internal to Scripture, I wanted to spend some time on this, but we're, we're running out of time. But I, look with me on the back of your outline. Scripture has the ability from within to signal affinities and connections. Scripture has the ability from within to signal the books it is connected with united with. So you have, how did Jesus refer to the scriptures? The law, the prophets, and the psalms. Psalms meaning writings. He's referring to, on your left-hand column there, the Hebrew order of the canon. You had the law, the five books of Moses. These books had a kind of affinity that signaled their connection together. They had within themselves the ability to connect to each other. Canon is from within. It's not that you figure it out with external criteria, but rather from within they connect. You have the prophets, the former and the latter. The book of the twelve, a collection with all sorts of themes that weave throughout and connect them with each other. And then you have what is called the writings. Beautifully, by the way, in the Hebrew order, ending with chronicles. There is... Uh, with, with Cyrus's decree for people to return to the promised land of Israel, looking to the future king to come. There's a beauty in the, the canon ending with Chronicles. The same thing happens in the New Testament pattern. You have the book of the four Gospels, the letters of Paul. This is how our Belgic Confession speaks of the New Testament, that there are these affinities within the canon by which they connect with each other, and those affinities, that unity, those connections together, are part of how the canon emerges. 
And when our Belgic Confession speaks of the New Testament in that way, it is speaking of it in a way that echoes how Jesus spoke of the Old Testament. Again, law, prophets, writings. We could say we have the law, the prophets, the writings, and the apostles. That's how we then would refer to the New Testament. And one of the key concerns throughout all of this is the internal consistency of all of it. The beauty of how it all fits together and how those connections and affinities come apart. That's uh, uh, come into existence. That's one of the things we mean when we say canon is a principle internal to Scripture. Back to your main page now. Number two, letter C. But another thing we mean, and if... Whatever. If, 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 if I've somehow managed to lose all of you through all of this, which is what it feels like, here is the payoff of it. All right? Here's the payoff. This canon internal to Scripture, what is the point spiritually? It is that last sentence of letter C. That it is God's word that calls, summons, gathers, and creates his people. On the Roman Catholic claim, it is the church that gives birth to Scripture. On the evangelical claim, It's just me and my Bible. Neither of these claims is sustainable. Neither of them works ultimately. And neither of them is spiritually satisfying. And neither of them resonates with how the scriptures themselves speak. The way the scriptures speak is that God's word gathers a people. So it's not not just me and the Bible, but neither is it the church authoritatively defining the Bible. It is the scriptures gathering us together. And now, yes, you're flipping the page again to the quote from Ephraim Radner. I love the way he speaks of this. He is someone who has encouraged and helped me and how to think of canon in this way. Again, a question that I know many of us have been anxious about. I'm going to read this quote. I believe that what he describes here is very directly what the wisdom of the Belgic Confession is pointing us to. Right? That's not the authority of the church, but neither is it us as individuals. The Bible is not the object of our varied gazes. Rather, it is the subject. The divine word, the Bible, acts on us, not us on the Bible. And here he's speaking with ministers. How do we, as constructing agents of sermons, preach so that we are recipients rather than givers of the word? Gregory the Great famously said long ago that the Bible is like a river, both shallow and deep, in which a lamb may walk and an elephant may swim. But his point was that the divine word, as he put it, is itself active in different ways for each person. It causes trouble for the learned with its mysteries, he says, even while it brings joy or encourages the simple with its clarity. It nourishes little ones and strikes the learned with wonder. The word does something to people. Grasping this is itself a way of getting at its meaning and the character of God both. Here is what I believe is the beautiful payoff of what we confess in the Belgic Confession. God's word is living and active. God's word summons, gathers his church. God's word creates his people. We do not create it. It creates us. And our Reformed tradition is beautifully, wisely protecting us from that danger of simply retreating to whoever the minister happens to be in Rome or retreating simply to my own individual subjective experience. It is rather the power and effectiveness of the word 
bringing into existence the church. And as a conclusion to all of that, the payoff then is this unity of Scripture. Number three, that there are two Testaments. A great treasure of the Reformed tradition in continuity with the church before the Reformation is our particular emphasis upon the unity of Scripture. Letter A, the Old and New Testaments stand side by side as witnesses to Jesus Christ. As we read Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he's there with him, with them. And how does he explain himself? The Scriptures. What are the Scriptures that proclaim Christ? The law, the prophets, and the writings. They stand side by side with the apostles as testifying to him. And that internal unity is essential to their character as Scripture, as canon. Letter B, this internal unity testifies to the truth of Scripture, the glory of Christ, and the faithfulness of God. This beautiful unity is part of how the scriptureness of Scripture commends itself to us. It's why we must always be challenged to do the hard work of seeing how Old and New Testament fit together. In there we have that, that, uh, the, the beautiful expressing, proclaiming, announcing of the truthness of Scripture, Christ's glory as the one who's at the center of it, and the faithfulness of God through all of it. We remember that in the Scriptures, the word law, Torah, refers to all of God's word. And so with letter C, we praise God and we say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.